No, I was going to say that, you know, the thing is, we think about it as, you know, as the players who are bringing in a lot of money, but that really is a relatively small number. I looked this morning and right now the, the median compensation that student athletes are getting for an NIL activity is, um, let me look at my notes, $65. So for most students, we are not talking about a lot of money. Uh, in fact, I was talking to, to some of our student athletes here at Oregon State, and they were thrilled because they were making an extra $200 a month, and they thought that was just fantastic. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes we, we let those big name, big money student athletes really shape how we think about it, when for most student athletes, it's a few bucks in their, in their pocket. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, I'm joined by three scholars and thoughtful folks to talk about some current major shifts in college athletics and their implications. I'm excited to learn more about NIL, name, image, and likeness, and the transfer portal, discuss equity issues related to these, and explore the implications for student success. I'm really glad to have our three guests here with us today. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browser archives at studentaffairsnow.com. This episode is sponsored by Rutledge and Taylor and Francis. View their complete catalog of authoritative education titles at rutledge.com education. And it's also sponsored by Simplicity. A true partner, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, author, and coach, helping higher ed leaders and organizations advance leadership, learning, and equity. And you can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm recording this today from my home in Minneapolis, Minnesota, at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of both the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Let's get to the conversations. I'm excited to hear from all three of you in your different realms of expertise and especially the conversations we have amongst ourselves. Let's have you introduce yourself. And uh, we have got Ron, George, and Susan. We're gonna start with you, Ron. Hi, my name's Ron Wade. My pronouns are he and him. And I am a clinical assistant professor at the University of Michigan. My Tell studies... us a little bit more about your background, a little bit more <laughs> about your background related to this. I think it's really helpful context. Well, um, I've been at the University of Michigan since 2018. I teach um, sales management in sports, experiential marketing in sports, basic marketing, and social media in sport. And I came to the university and to academia after a 15-year career in professional baseball, working with both the St. Paul Saints up in your town of Minnesota and um, the Detroit Tigers, where I was the director of marketing for several years there. Mm -hmm. Great. And I think this sort of marketing aspect of, of athletics is a really important perspective. And George, you're back with us today. Uh, what do you want folks to know about you? Good morning. I'm George McClellan, professor of higher education at the University of Mississippi. And uh, I've been in student affairs and higher education for <clears throat> a good number of years, let's just say that. Um, my, uh, my research interests are all over the place, but uh, one of those places is intercollegiate athletics and so I, I have an interest in esports. I have an interest in um, I, I have studied college student gambling, which includes gambling on intercollegiate athletics and by ga gambling by college athletes. 
Uh, and I'm also interested in higher education law and intercollegiate athletics, and particularly the status of students who participate. Are they employees? Are they students? Are they, what are they exactly? And that question is wound pretty tightly to the kind of stuff that we'll be talking about today. Yeah. So folks who are really intrigued by that gambling little snippet, there's a whole nother conversation about gambling that George was on with some other folks uh, that you can find in our archives. Thanks for being here. And Susan, help uh, folks to learn a little bit more about you. Hi, I'm Susan Shaw, and I'm a professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Oregon State University. I teach a course called Gender, Race, and Sport uh, at the undergraduate level. And then I also write about women and gender and sports for Forbes.com and for Ms. Magazine online. And I'm very excited because I have a new PhD student who's getting ready to do some work on uh, gender and DEI in the NFL. So I'm very excited about that because I don't always have students who want to talk sports. So I'm excited to talk uh, college sports and uh, NIL with everyone today. Yeah. Well, and I'll add a little bit more about, um, I've been trying to put an episode together on this topic and trying to find the right people was really challenging. So Ron's in this realm and has been doing some a survey and some research on this. George is a longtime observer and advocate of student success and student athletics. And then Susan, I found your Forbes article and it was just what I was looking for. Someone who was really looking at this from lots of different ang angles, asking lots of different questions. And I was like, this is, this is the group we need to have here for us. So I'm so excited. Um, and, uh, you're all just, as we've did before we hit the button, wildly curious people about lots of different things. So I'm excited for that to come out. Let's, uh, sort of lay the foundation and get some context here. Uh, Ron, help us understand what NIL is beyond that it stands for name, image, and likeness. And I think that the NIL and the transfer portal are two things that are both relatively new and in unison having a lot of upheaval uh, in particular sports and particular institutions. How are they changing the student athlete experience? Yeah, well, if you look at the way college sports has evolved the last 10 years it is vastly different than what we were seeing even you know, 10, 15 years ago, where athletes now with the transfer portal, it gives athletes the opportunity to leave a university and go to another university without having to sit out a year, which is what they used to have to do. Um, and this was in response to the, the fact that there would be coaches who would take a job, recruit these, these people to come play for them and then leave right away to go to another opportunity. And the students were being punished by having to wait an extra year before they could transfer. So now they're able to transfer freely. Um, now if their coach leaves, they have 30 days and they can transfer anywhere they want. But NIL, name, image, and likeness, came into effect. Where it took a long period of time to get to where we are with NIL, where the Supreme Court voted 9-0 in the Alston versus NCAA case to um, let athletes actually profit from name, image, and likeness. Now, schools cannot directly pay athletes to come play for them, but athletes now can get endorsements. They can actually see their name on the back of jerseys and get money from those type of sales. They're able to use the fact that they're an athlete in order to um, get marketing opportunities and get endorsement opportunities. So this has changed um, the game for college athletes in the way that now, instead of being true amateurs as the old amateur model was, which where you couldn't make any money at all, these athletes can now make some money 
and learn their craft while still being college athletes, student mm -hmm. athletes. Yeah. Well, and it seems to me that previously uh, students would transfer after a not good experience, right? They would be at an institution, they wouldn't be getting playing time, they wouldn't be as successful, and then they would maybe transfer somewhere else where they thought they maybe had a fresh start, a better thing. Now I'm seeing student athletes who are having great seasons at X school and seeing how can I leverage that to move to Y school where maybe there's more name image and likeness and maybe I'm making a little bit of connection and maybe a little bit of money at this school around name image and likeness. But if I move there, I could double or triple that because they have an affiliation with a car dealership or a local alumni or things like that. And so it's just to me seeming like there's a, I know schools can't do this, but the 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 affiliation is pretty close and pretty loose where it can sort of be um, kind of bidding and recruiting um, for college athletes. Is that what's playing out? Um, what we've seen is that a lot of athletes have they take into account, you know, their best opportunity to play, the best opportunity to learn and grow, the best opportunity to find where they can succeed enough to get the attention of the next level, whether it be professional sports or or the NFL or overseas. But these collectives, there are rules behind NIL where these collectives can't go and offer the money to come come to the school, come to the school. But they do see what is going on. They are learning about, you know, the difference between certain markets, the different alumni at certain universities that have influence and power and may have financial means that can lead to opportunities. Um, kind of similar to what you've seen with, with um, professional sports where athletes may try to get positions in New York or LA because there's more opportunities there for endorsements. Mm -hmm. Well, colleges, the alumni have a different base. So there could mm -hmm. be opportunities at a school like Oklahoma that you may not be able to get in Northwestern mm -hmm. just because of the alumni. So it's there's kind of weighing those, those, um, those pros and cons as well. Um, the athletes themselves, I think what they're doing, they're going to be constantly looking. They have four years, essentially, maybe five if they have the COVID year, mm -hmm. four years, essentially, to maximize what they're going to do. And we know that most of these athletes aren't going pro. So mm -hmm. if you're going to do it during this time, you need to try to maximize it. So I think they're keeping their, their ears open, their eyes open to see what the opportunities are. And I think a lot of the headlines get the, the, the folks who are going and getting major right? You know, half a million dollars or a million dollar name, image, and likeness. And that sort of gets the attentions. But I, I was reading about a relatively unknown student athlete who isn't going to be going pro, but by moving from this school to that school, got another $15,000. And I thought, that's real money. <laughs> like that is significant. If you don't have a million dollar professional contracts on the horizon, that is a significant shift to, that can make uh, your college years easier, can maybe help your family if they're in a tight spot along the way. So even at the lower levels, this is significant. So one of the one of the challenges when NIL got enacted was we all sort of had this illusion, uh, delusion perhaps, <laughs> um, that we could set up this world in which this money would be out there but it wouldn't be allowed to be used for recruiting. You're not supposed to use NIL money to say, come to this school, right? And somehow we believed that wouldn't happen because we didn't set up any enforcement mechanisms or any really meaningful education mechanisms for students. Uh, but we just sort of believed in the, whatever, truth, justice in the American way that that was gonna somehow work out. Um, 
the other the other thing that's really fascinating, I think a lot of us, a lot of our conversation around this stuff is driven by a few programs and mm -hmm. a few athletes at a few institutions. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot more activity, as you just pointed out, Keith, right? I mean, it happens. So when you think about the portal, students, students outside of the money sports in D1, they've had greater freedoms to transfer for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and the biggest chunk of people who transfer, uh, the, the students who participate in athletics, they don't go from D1 to D1. They go D1 to D2 or D3. And the reason is exactly what you said, Keith. They, they're, they're in a D1 and they're like bench sitting and, mm -hmm. and they're not getting playing time. I think Ron referenced this, right? And they're not getting playing time. And so now they look, well, hey, I could go to D2 and be like the rock star. Mm -hmm. and really get my playing time and so it's it's sort of interesting we we think about this in the sort of billion dollar million dollar kind of arena and and, mm -hmm. and typically we think about football uh at a few programs but it it really affects a lot more people and and when we talk about as we go through the conversation we talk about equity issues and all of that sort of thing i think it really helps to remember the context because it may mm -hmm. look like one thing in certain places mm -hmm. and another thing in other places. Yeah. I was gonna say that, you know, the thing is we think about it as, you know, as the players who are bringing in a lot of money, but that really is a relatively small number. I looked this morning and right now the, the median compensation that student athletes are getting for an NIL activity is, um, let me look at my notes, $65. So for most students, we are not talking about a lot of money. Uh, in fact, I was talking to to some of our student athletes here at Oregon State, and they were thrilled because they were making an extra two hundred dollars a month, and they thought that was just fantastic. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes we we let those big name, big money student athletes really shape how we think about it. When for most student athletes, it's a few bucks in their in their pocket. Yeah. That's a lot of ramen and macaroni and cheese and trips to Subway, which was what I was spending my money on when I was in college. That, that's significant. I also want to, um, you know, Ron, you mentioned a really interesting dynamic is that um, it's not just smaller markets to big markets, as we often see in professional sports. But you mentioned someone going from Northwestern in Chicago <laughs> to Oklahoma in Oklahoma, or you know, someone might move from Rutgers right outside New York City to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Right, because that might be a larger name, image, and likeness market, which I think is also a little contrary to what we might imagine. Yeah, and you know, kind of following up to your point, Susan, you know, the non-revenue generating sports, the Olympic sports, there's a tremendous opportunity for those athletes there now with NIL. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of as, far, as a marketing as a marketer from a marketing standpoint, there's opportunity there for brands to partner with young influential athletes at a cost that you know you're not going to spend millions to try to go after a star quarterback mm -hmm. and it may be much more cost effective these are ways that these athletes can elevate their brand in an olympic sport and it'd be the springboard to whatever their career is afterwards yeah, yeah women gymnasts are doing quite well i mean relative yeah. to pretty much every other sport except football it's really women gymnasts who've taken mm -hmm. advantage you know and we've got jade carey here and she's like i think number 
I want to say, where, where is she? Number 17 or something on the NIL top valuations and on, on three. And yeah, so there are opportunities as well as some of the, the difficulties. Um, for, for folks who don't know, there's a thing that, that Susan just mentioned called on three. Um, you can look it up. You can, you can Google it. You can use the Google and, uh, and it lists the, like the top hundred students who participate in athletics and how much money they make and all that sort of thing. And one of the really interesting things that you'll find, because we don't talk about this often enough either, I think, is yes, there's some relationship in terms of sports, but the other big thing is how social media savvy are the students? If you've got a really vital LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok kind of base, you can cash, mm-hmm. right? And so we, 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 a lot of times we think about helping these students learn about money management or contract negotiation or whatever. Um, it's also social media. Their ability yeah. to really get over on NIL is pretty well linked to their social media presence. Yeah. And that's so in smaller problem. markets and those non-money sports, like Susan mentioned, that's how those students are really making it is they have huge social media followers. Yeah. And Susan, Bill, I want to, oh, I'm sorry. I, was, I want to turn to you, Susan, to talk about the equity issues and we can kind of take this in lots of different directions. I think as we talked about, a lot of the big money is around football and men's basketball at a relatively small number of institutions. <laughs> Um, and then there are some exceptions, as, as you're mentioning, some other folks who are getting in here, as Ron is pointing to Olympic sports, particularly in and around Olympic years and competition could be could be really different. But there's some inequities here on gender. There's some inequities here around uh, different sports. There's some inequities here on different institution types, mm-hmm. different locations. Mm-hmm. Um, help us. I, I really appreciate that you were looking at lots of different ways. This helps student athletes in this way. Is it's kind of a, here's the downside. So help us understand some of the equity issues here. Yeah, so gender is certainly a, a, a big one. I, I went and took a look at, at on three. And so um, there are only two women in the top 10 valuations uh, for for that. Uh, as you move down, the percentage gets even worse. So if mm-hmm. you look at the top 100, there are only seven women in the, in the top 100. Uh, and it, it's interesting because in the top 10, the, you know, you've got Bronny James is at the top um, at, at USC. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it's also sometimes the name recognition helps out as well. And so, you know, Bronny James is is valued at $5.8 million. Uh, and then the the top woman is Livy Dunn, who's a, an LSU gymnast, uh, who's at $3.5 million. Wow. But then it drops off pretty fast. And, uh, you know, you get down to... Um, uh, like the the number ten woman, who who's uh, Mia Mastroff at Cal, who's three hundred sixty three thousand. So you see see that it falls off pretty pretty fast there. Yeah. And so women just don't have the same opportunities for the those those big dollars. And so gender is certainly a factor there. And also going back to George's point about social media, you're absolutely right. But social media actually poses particular dangers for women as well. Mm-hmm. And so the ways that women get targeted on social media and then the potential of that even moving into real life can be really sort of scary. And so when that becomes your primary way of, of making money, it's sort of selling yourself. And as one of my students said, you know, and we also know it's the pretty girls who are going to get the biggest following. And so it's these sorts of ways that athletes get gendered that make a, a big difference there. 
Um, as you mentioned, you know, there are other things, though, like whether or not you're in a Power 5 conference, which will soon be a Power 4 conference. And so as someone whose university has been devastated by this realignment, mm -hmm. I wonder what that will mean for our student athletes, you know, who, who came here because we're, you know, we're top ranked in gymnastics in uh, wrestling in women's basketball. So we have all these sports where they came to play in a power five conference. Now what's that going to do to their earning potential through NIL if they stay here and basketball's playing in the WCC gymnastics, uh, baseball are going to be independent. And so I think that there are issues there. Uh, I also found out talking to our athletes that international students can't do NIL because they can't mm. be outside the university. And so even when you have a top ranked athlete, uh, if they're a, a, an international student, they, they can't earn anything. Mm. Um, we mentioned the non-revenue generating sports and because they have less visibility, they have less earning potential as well. Um, you know, and I worry about things too, about students' access to agents, for example. Mm -hmm. So the students who have the greatest earning potential are more likely to get an agent. And then you just worry about students being taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're in the classroom with them. We know that at 18, they may be adults, but there's a <laughs> lot they don't know how to manage about the world. And I really worry about... Um, mm -hmm. So predatory actors who see this as an opportunity to to basically build their own uh, value base, you know, ba based on the the lack of knowledge of a student who who's maybe not able to do that, and so I worry about their level of nil education and the ways that they understand what's going on. And I know universities are are taking that on, but I think again it varies widely across universities. Yeah. That's I, one of the biggest frustrations, Susan, is the fact there's not a standard, right? You know, standard practices, best practices, standard training, standard. We know there are rules, but then we all know that those rules are people try to bend them to their will. Yeah. So, yeah. well, how can how can colleges and athletic departments best go step forward and say, hey, we need some guidelines? Please get together and give us some guidelines. They've been trying for years and it still hasn't has seemed to take in shape. Take shape. Why it seems like it? a kind of a, a difficult situation for athletic departments to be in because on one hand, we can't be involved. On the other hand, we need to help manage it. <laughs> and I would assume, I, I, if I were an athletic director, the more we get into managing and directing and doing this, then the more risk we are at being in trouble. But beyond that, there, you know, in professional sports, there's a lot of rules around agents and what they can do. And if they misbehave, there's a lot of consequences with, um, with associations, with, uh, with players associations, with all of that. And it seems here that there's a lot of room for agents to be college students who graduated three years ago, got an MBA and now can do this or that. And, um, some of them I'm sure have athletes best interests at heart for sure. Um, and some of them are just trying to make as much money as quickly as they can and in a realm with very, seems to me like very little consequence for mismanagement or, or deception. And, well, and, and I, well, I, I was, I, I worry too, that of course, often those people don't see them as student athletes. Mm -hmm. And so I think we recognize that, that there are students, that there are particular needs related to that. And so I also worry, you know, if they're spending all this time on NIL activities, what are they missing out? 
And of course, I worry that they're missing out on their, their class and their studies, but also they're missing out on just being normal college students, which is hard enough for athletes anyway. And so I think that there are a lot of things that get wrapped up in this when they're having to spend so much time on social media, when they're so concerned about their brand. And I worry about the tensions and jealousies that can even set up yeah. among athletes on a team. Well, you're queuing up George for one of his favorite rants. So let me just add to it here a little bit. Uh, so this episode, the whole reason for this episode is because one of our favorite listeners, Susan Comaves, emailed and said, I'm really curious about NIL and the transfer portal and what it's doing to the athletics and what it's going to mean for student success and student graduation and retention and completion rates. I think this would be a fascinating conversation. So thank you, Susan. And thanks to all of you for making this possible. Um, and we really wanted George here uh, to talk a little bit about the implications around student success. So what are you seeing? And uh, when we, particularly when we think about that word student athletes. Well, first of all, uh, I, I try not to use the phrase student athletes. And the reason that, that I don't is because the, 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 the term was actually coined by the NCAA, by an employee of the NCAA, as part of an effort to keep from having to compensate students. And so I, it's, it's an awkward construction, but you'll hear me talk about students who participate in athletics or simply athletes. But I try to use, I try to avoid using the phrase student athletes and, and there's a reason. Uh, That's really interesting. To the bigger, to the bigger question um, about how things like the portal in NIL may impact on student success. And I, and I say may because as, as we started out, it's so new and it's changing so fast, it's really hard to say with any certainty mm -hmm. what the impacts may be. Um, I have some guesses and hopefully they're educated guesses. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I can point to some questions that I think we all ought to keep our eyes on. And Susan, as you said, Keith, Susan sort of led us there, right? By saying, look, for example, we already know that lots of higher education institutions aren't great with handling transfer students. Mm -hmm. They don't set mm -hmm. that up well. Mm -hmm. We don't handle it well, not on the giving end and not on the receiving end. Right. And not on the onboarding and orientation right. and connecting. Right. And, yeah. and that's for students who leave normally busy student lives, <laughs> yeah. let alone, as Susan pointed out, the sort of incredibly busy lives of athletes and then athletes who are trying to run really successful entrepreneurial NIL entities at the same time, right? Um, so I think part of the concern for, around the portal issue relates to that whole idea of transitioning. And some of this will depend on the receiving athletics program, right? How much care do they take to onboarding people into a new community? You can't assume are there some commonalities across football culture? Sure. But is the culture at the University of Mississippi's football program the same as the culture at, uh, you know, Lake Forest colleges? No, they're probably not the same cultures, right? And so, so some attention has to be given to those sorts of things to help make sure that those transfers are, are you know, I, I think about a student transferring, you know, right now, uh, Lane Kiffin here at the University of Mississippi is pretty much viewed as having one of the top portal groups going on. I don't know how much you know about Oxford, Mississippi, but housing is not an abundant commodity around here. So just the simple act of I'm moving in the middle of the year and I need to find a place to live is a pretty big deal. 
Now you complicate it with all the scheduling hassles of being a student athlete, a student participating in athletics. And then you add to that, and I'm trying to run my NL, NIL entity, mm-hmm. it gets to be a lot. And so that whole transfer piece is going to be really important. We know that that can, can be a problem for success. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to add, I'm sorry if it's sort of circular or, or not linear here, but the other thing I think we need to do is interrogate what we mean when we say student success. Right? Because for some of these students, getting all this business experience and all this sort of thing, that is success. Mm-hmm. That is what it looks like. They're, they're, they could be learning really powerful lessons. Mm-hmm. Whether they continue on in their athletics career or not, whatever direction they go, there's some really powerful learning here. And so one of my questions is, we all know the best learning is guided learning. Mm-hmm. not completely controlled not completely independent but guided mm-hmm. structured learning so who's doing the structure mm-hmm. who's helping define the outcomes who's helping measure the progress mm-hmm. and yeah. again that 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 may look very differently in very different kinds of places and this um keith you mentioned earlier this this you know who who sorts of who who sets up who trains these students around these issues well, you don't want athletics departments or universities to do it because they have an inherent conflict of interest in this conversation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. My argument is, so I, I don't know how, the NCAA has a speakers bureau where they offer programs, a list of speakers who've been to some extent vetted by the NCAA. Mm-hmm. And then, the, then so all of the NCAA programs are required to do certain kinds of education efforts for their students. So maybe we would develop a portal and NIL sort of speaker expert list vetted in some way, and and they're out there and sort of independent, quasi-independent. And that might help us a little bit with some of this stuff. So those are some of the success issues. Also, um, you know, because it's not all bad, right? We, We sort of joked about this earlier, but we know how many students struggle to get food on the table, to be able to buy the books, to be able to put gas in the car to get to campus. Mm-hmm. And so for a student who can make now, as Susan said, $100, $200, right? And, and Kiki was sort of joking, but it is a lot of ramen and it is a lot of yeah. mac and cheese, right? And totally. You can buy a lot of $1 canned soup. Mm-hmm. You know? And so that's gonna, that, so for some students, this NIL stuff is really a difference maker and in yeah. a very positive, right? In terms of student success. Yeah. Uh, so the things that they can learn, if we help guide them, mm-hmm. the ways that they can help better afford opportunities in school. I mean, how many times do we know students who don't go do study abroad or don't go do internships or don't go do X, Y, or Z because they, don't, they can't afford to do it? Yeah. Maybe this lets them do some things. Yeah. Right? So Ron, not- I know you're... Ron, I know you're doing a survey around this. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And I don't know where you're at in that, what you're learning, what you're hoping to learn. Well, it's still ongoing. We've, we've I've partnered with a couple of colleagues, uh, other institutions, notably um, Sam Fullerton at Eastern Michigan. And we've surveyed students, freshmen through seniors, on their thoughts about NIL and thoughts about, you know, do they think athletes should be compensated and should it be structured? And... What we've discovered is that 
overwhelmingly, many of the, the students are in favor of it. They're in favor. They see no reason why athletes shouldn't be able to make money off of their name, image, and likeness. Mm -hmm. um, where we didn't see a lot of consistent, we can't make any judgments yet, is on gender and mm -hmm. whether they feel as though it's equitable for both mm -hmm. the men and the male and female athletes, whether they think it's equitable for the non-revenue generating sports. Mm -hmm. So that part we haven't really got, we haven't gotten enough data points yet because we've only been doing this for a couple of years. But so far, and this is a cross-section of multiple universities, um, not just Michigan and Eastern, um, Michigan State, um, a couple other universities as well. So what we are, though, is we believe that most of the students are in favor. But, and this is just me, my opinion, I think that structure aspect of it is the part that the students recognize that they need. They need to be some sort of equity. There needs to be some sort of structure. And... Keith, you brought up um, something where you mentioned that professional organizations, they have, you know, a, a players association, they have a union that can kind of help along with that negotiates along with the, um, the leagues. I think that if you look ahead and you see where things are going right now, I think that you're going to see to a point where, and we've seen it in case in cases right now in the courts where athletes have tried to unionize mm -hmm. and they've been turned down or they haven't been able to do it, but they're getting a little bit closer each time. And at some point that wall is going to fall. And then when athletes can unionize and they can be declared employees, that's when there's gonna be a huge change because yeah. no college wants to pay athletes as employees. And that's going to open up a whole new, yeah whole new wave of change. So as we try to study this and try to research and try to come up with conclusions, by the time we get to a point where we have enough data to make a conclusion, everything's going to change. Everything shifted. And, I also think this, this is going to get more and more political. I mean, we see some of this already. If if more restrictions benefits our big time college program that everybody's talking about all over the state and all over the thing, it really incentivizes politicians to be for those restrictions. And if those restrictions harm us, and our chances of being in the NCAA playoff for football, for instance, there's some political incentive to push back on that because it's a wildly popular thing, right? Uh, sports, for better or worse, really unites a lot of people. We were talking about Oregon and Oregon State can unite the state depending on the year and depending on how such and such is doing. Um, and so I, I worry a little bit about this being sort of a, the, the politics of the convenience of the moment to garner for politicians, a few more media hits, maybe some own fundraising of their own, right? <laughs> politicians have NIL for a long time. Well, and I worry just about the NCAA's seeming ineffectiveness in actually creating structures to benefit um, athletes, you know, and granted, I will go ahead and say I am bitter about what happened to the Pac-12 and mm -hmm. the, the lack of the NCAA's leadership in that to prevent our conference from being destroyed. But I, again, I haven't seen them step in here also and give uh, the, the level of guidance uh, so that we have this just piecemeal map of mm -hmm. rules in different areas and schools and states and types of institutions. And I just don't think that serves students. I think we have to remember that the NCAA is us. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, we say the NCAA doesn't do this and the NCAA doesn't do that. And I hear you. Um, but the NCAA is us. It, it, it's a membership-driven association. So, you know, it, it's I've met the enemy and they are us. Um, <laughs> and it, it's, our, it's our own 
inability to trust one another. It's our own greed. It's our own drive yep. for prestige. I, I, I was, I was thinking about what Ron said. You know, I, I go back and forth on this, and I don't have a great crystal ball, but I increasingly believe that that the very, very top tier programs are going to spin off to their separate mm-hmm. not-for-profit entities. And something will emerge as not-for-profit sports competitions, or there'll be some structure like that, because the interest of this modest number, but huge social impact set of programs, Mm -hmm. those needs can't be, I just don't see how we get those needs aligned with the other still D1, but not big money D1 or D2 or D3 programs or NIA, because we're all talking about NCAA, but remember there's NAIA and junior college mm-hmm. student athlete or athletes participating in, in uh, students participating in athletics. I really don't think that these tensions are reconcilable in the current structure. I, mm-hmm. I really don't. I, I, I and, and again, I admit, I, for, for, you know, Forecasting the future is, is, is a fool's errand in higher ed and lots of other enterprises, but I'll play the fool for a moment. I, I just don't think we can reconcile these tensions. And, and so eventually I imagine some sort of separate not-for-profit entities that are the big sports and the legal logic will be there's a social benefit to that and entertainment economic benefit. And so we'll let that happen. Mm-hmm. And then all the other programs that are sort of not big money programs will continue kind of like we are now, but as Ron pointed out, Susan have been talking about with sort of evolving NIL portal frameworks. I love prognosticating the future. So I, I, it's a slippery slope, but it's, it's interesting. Um, We, I also wonder what, what, what do others see ahead or what questions do you have about the future here real quick before we move on to, to our closure? Well, I, I do think that the conference realignment is probably going to accelerate what George is talking about. And I imagine football spinning off in particular, maybe, you know, men, men's basketball. Uh, I don't know, maybe part of the reason we're hanging on to the, the Pac-12 is we're hoping in a few years, everybody comes back for all the rest of the sports. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I cannot imagine our students it, it from, from the University of Oregon or from uh, Stanford are going to enjoy having to travel back and forth to the East Coast the several Rutgers. times to see them. Yeah. 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 And in sports like soccer, where you have two or three games a week, you know, or two games a week, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about what I'm kind of excited about with this is that as a marketer, the potential um, for like collectibles and the potential t- for other revenue to be generated for these athletes. I, I'm excited about that, but I'm also very wary and cautious of what could happen. But you see things like Arch Manning's first first card, a signed card was sold for thousands of dollars already. So now you're getting to the point where you've got- Who's barely played college football. Exactly. So now you've got a chance for these athletes to- not only cash in a big way, but they also the collectibles market and find ways to to get additional revenue through collectibles. And I think that's a a big growth area, especially with women's sports. And you know, I love the fact that I turned on a TV and I saw Caitlin Clark on a State Farm commercial. Mm-hmm. It was it was really nice to see that you know they're they're embracing college athletes mm-hmm. in this way. But it's again, it's scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. 
but it's scary. Mm -hmm. I guess for me, what comes next is federal legislation. I think that's there's there's already. Can we do that anymore? Federal legislation. <laughs> Apparently, there's still there's already three or four bills out there. I think there's going to have to be. As much as I generally am not a fan of, you know, we, we're not supposed to have a federal higher education system, but uh, I, I think federal legislation is coming. And and one of the interesting questions for me is what happens when a student's NIL interests clash within institutions. So. Keith mentioned gambling earlier. Mm -hmm. um, what happens when I want to sign a deal with a gambling gaming company? Because some or, of the what, bills, have, what happens the when we're a Pepsi being, school and I want to yeah. sign with Coke? Right. Some of some of the some of the legislation that's being proposed very explicitly says there can't be any limits on the NIL interest of the student. Mm -hmm. So now I can do tobacco. I can do my local cannabis shop. I can do I can do gambling. I you know again Pepsi Coke. I we're a Nike school, and I'm going to do whatever you know K Swiss yep. or yep. tennis shoes. But yeah, interesting. I, I I'm I'm just waiting for that. That that's that's coming. Yeah. Well, this I I love this because I really wanted to have a conversation that explored not for or against or a binary thinking, but the complexity of it. And, and here we are, <laughs> it's more muddy and more messy than when we started. And I love that. So I thank you all three of you for really being informed. I wanna move us to wrapping up as we're just about out of time. The podcast is called Student Affairs Now. So we always like to end with what are you thinking about troubling or pondering now? And also if folks wanna connect with you, uh, what's the easiest way for them to do that? So George, what are you pondering now? It might be related to this conversation or something else. What's with you now? Um, I, I'm, I, I see the cycles of history in higher education and I'm waiting for the swing back to the great presidents who aren't afraid to stand up and talk mm -hmm. about the true values of American higher education mm -hmm. and not just what's politically convenient. Um, so that's 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 what I'm waiting for. Where 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 are the higher education leaders who will who will speak, you know, truth to power? Mm -hmm. And and mm -hmm. if you want to reach out for me, uh, you're welcome to email me here at the University of Mississippi. I'm also on Twitter, which I refuse to call that other name, and okay. it's GSM the letter the number four students GSM four students. So. Nice, nice. Well, I think you know you're mentioning presidential leadership. I think on this issue that would be great. On DEI that would be great. On student success that would be great. On state funding that would be great. So many things, and then of course presidents don't seem to last nearly as long as they they once did. You know, Clark Kerr was decades in in a role, and it it it's always been a tough job. It is really tough right now, but the answer is not to be quiet. I mean, yeah. I, I I'm not sure of everything, but I'm sure that quiet isn't the answer yeah awesome thank you george uh susan what are you pondering now other than your new book so feel free to mention that yeah too. yeah oh gosh i'm pondering so many things i mean related to this i am pondering what the impact of conference realignment is going to be mm -hmm. um on students on coaches on staffs and, and what all that's going to mean with all the travel and mm -hmm. of course you know, sort of selfishly speaking, what that's going to mean for OSU and for Washington State, who are in a whole world of hurt financially mm -hmm. now because of this, and what's the impact going to be on the academic side mm -hmm. of the house? 
Um, but I'm also pondering just some things I saw in the news. There's a, a, a big thing in the news today about um, uh, gender-based violence and hockey players in Canada. Mm -hmm. And um, also, the I don't know if you saw the Washington Post big expose about how the NFL is trying really hard not to pay out the um, concussion dollars that it owes uh, players who've been um, hurt and who are suffering from dementia. And so I'm pondering those things as well. Mm -hmm. And you have a new book. I do. I have a new book, which has nothing to do with any of this. Well, tell us about it anyway. <laughs> so uh, my my other hat is in uh, religious studies. And so I have a book coming out called with Grace G. Sun Kim called Surviving God. And it's uh, doing theology from the perspective of survivors of sexual abuse. And so that comes out March 26. So I'm very excited about that. And if people want to reach me, you can reach me at Oregon State University. I'm on, yes, that that platform that used to be called Twitter. I'm, I'm at Feminist Gadfly. Um, and I'm also on Instagram at Susan Shaw1960. So you can find me in all those places. Thank you. Thank you. And Ron, what's what are you pondering now? Well, as someone who left the sports industry um, to go into academia, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is I talk to students and it kind of leads goes to this NIL conversation as well with some of the athletes is I'm really curious about why people leave the sports industry. And I feel as though that's a, an aspect of a career in sports that I haven't been able to give my students. We haven't gotten raw data. I've been trying to look for reports and data and research on, you know, why people have left the sport industry. Is it because of you know, what's going on? It was the timing. Is it because of the requirements? Is it because of low, lower pay? So that is something that I've been kind of passionate about for the last last couple of years. And I'm now, I've been really thinking about it lately, the last few months, because I've had, it seems to be a slew of people that I know in my network who've all left the industry for other industries. So I'm kind of thinking about that research. I think it's very interesting to find out why people are leaving that industry. Um, if you want to reach me at all, if you have any ideas, <laughs> um, you can reach me on Instagram at Prof R. Wade. I'm on LinkedIn as well as Ron Wade. Um, I'm not on the platform formerly known as Twitter anymore. So um, those are the two best ways to get a hold of me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks to all three of you for being here and being a part of this conversation. I've learned a lot. And um, as, as good learning is, you know, now the more I know, the, the more I know I don't know. And so it's even messier and more complex. And, and I love that you brought that to me and to our audience. So thanks to all of you for your thinking and your leadership and for sharing today. Thanks also to our sponsors for today's episode, Rutledge and Simplicity. Rutledge and Taylor and Francis is the world's leading academic publisher in education publishing, a wide range of books, journals, and other resources for practitioners, faculty, administrators, and researchers. They have welcomed Stylus Publishing to their publishing platform and are thrilled to enrich their offerings in higher education teaching, student affairs, professional development, assessment, and more. Rutledge is proud to sponsor Student Affairs Now. View their complete catalog or authoritative education titles at rutledge.com education. And Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success, and accessibility services. 
To learn more, visit simplicity.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And a huge shout out to our producer, Nat Ambrosi, who does all the behind the scenes work to make all of us look and sound good. We love the support of these important conversations from our community. You, you can help us reach even more folks by subscribing to the podcast, our YouTube channel, or our weekly newsletter, announcing each new episode and more. If you're so inclined, you can also leave a five-star review. It really does help us reach a larger audience with these conversations. Keith Edwards, thanks again to the fabulous guests today and to everyone who's watching and listening. Make it a great week. Thanks, everybody.